Section 14 of The History of Rome, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Mark Jacoby. The History of Rome, Volume 1 by Livy. Translated by William Matheson Roberts. Book 2, Chapters 51 to 63. Chapter 51. The Etruscans Threaten Rome. When this disaster occurred, Gaius Horatius and Titus Menenius were consuls. Menenius was at once sent against the Tuscans, flushed with their recent victory. Another unsuccessful action was fought, and the enemy took possession of the geniculum. The city, which was suffering from scarcity as well as from the war, would have been invested for the Etruscans had crossed the Tiber, had not the consul Horatius been recalled from the Volsi. The fighting approached so near the walls that the first battle, an indecisive one, took place near the Temple of Spes, and the second at the Colline Gate. In the latter, although the Romans gained only a slight advantage, the soldiers recovered something of their old courage and were better prepared for future campaigns. The next consuls, were Aulus Virginius and Spurius Servilius. After their defeat in the last battle, the Vientines declined an engagement. There were forays. From the Janiculum as from a citadel, they made raids in all directions on the Roman territory. Nowhere were the cattle or the country folk safe. They were ultimately caught by the same stratagem by which they had caught the Fabi. Some cattle were purposefully driven in different directions as a decoy. They followed them and fell into an ambuscade, and as their numbers were greater, the slaughter was greater. Their rage at this defeat was the cause and commencement of a more serious one. They crossed the Tiber by night and marched up to an attack on Servilius' camp, but were routed with great loss, and with great difficulty reached the Janiculum. The consul himself forthwith crossed the Tiber and entrenched himself at the foot of the Janiculum. The confidence inspired by his victory of the previous day, but still more by the scarcity of corn, made him decide upon an immediate but precipitate move. He led his army at daybreak up the side of the Janiculum to the enemy's camp, but he met with a more disastrous repulse than the one he had inflicted the day before. It was only by the intervention of his colleague that he and his army were saved. The Etruscans, caught between the two armies, and retreating from each alternately, were annihilated. So the Veientin War was brought to a sudden close by an act of happy rashness. Chapter 52. Impeachments by the Tribunes of the Plebes. Together with peace, food came more freely into the city. Corn was brought from Campania, and as the fear of future scarcity had disappeared, each individual brought out what he had hoarded. The result of ease and plenty was fresh restlessness, and as the old evils no longer existed abroad, men began to look for them at home. The tribunes began to poison the minds of the plebeians with the agrarian law and inflamed them against the senators who resisted it, not only against the whole body, but individual members. Quintus Considius and Titus Genusius, who were advocating the law, appointed a day for the trial of Titus Menenius. 
popular feeling was roused against him by the loss of the fort at the Cremera, since, as consul, he had his standing camp not far from it. This crushed him, though the senators exerted themselves for him no less than they had done for Coriolanus, and the popularity of his father, Agrippa, had not died away. The tribunes contented themselves with a fine, though they had arraigned him on a capital charge. The amount was fixed at 2,000 asses. This proved to be a death sentence, for they say that he was unable to endure the disgrace and grief and was carried off by a fatal malady. Spurius Servilius was the next to be impeached. His prosecution, conducted by the tribunes Lucius, Cadesius, and Titus Statius, took place immediately after his year had expired, at the commencement of the consulship of Gaius Nadius and Publius Valerius. When the day of the trial came, he did not, like Menenius, meet the attacks of the tribunes by appeal for mercy, whether his own or those of the senators. He relied absolutely on his innocence and personal influence. The charge against him was his conduct in the battle with the Tuscans on the Janiculum. But the same courage which he then displayed when the state was in danger, he now displayed when his own life was in danger. Meeting charge by countercharge, he boldly laid out the tribunes and the whole of the plebes, the guilt of the condemnation and death of Titus Meninius, the son he reminded them, of the man through whose efforts the plebeians had been restored to their position in the state and were enjoying those very magistracies and laws which now allow them to be cruel and vindictive. By his boldness, he dispelled the danger, and his colleague, Virginius, who came forward as a witness, assisted him by crediting him with some of his own services to the state. The thing that helped him more, however, was the sentence passed on by Menenius. So completely had the popular sentiment changed. Chapter 53 War with the Veii and the Sabines The domestic conflicts came to an end. War began again with the Veientans, with whom the Sabines had formed an armed league. The Latin and Hernican auxiliaries were summoned, and the consul, Publius Valerius, was sent with an army to Veii, he at once attacked the Sabine camp, which was situated in front of the walls of their allies, and created such confusion that while small bodies of the defenders were making sorties in various directions to repel the attack, the gate against which the assault had been first made was forced, and once inside the rampart, it became a massacre rather than a battle. The noise in the camp penetrated even to the city, and the Veientans flew to arms, in a state of as great alarm as if the Veii itself was taken. Some went to the help of the Sabines, others attacked the Romans, who were wholly occupied with their assault on the camp. For a few moments, they were checked and thrown into confusion. Then, forming front in both directions, they offered a steady resistance, while the cavalry, whom the consul had ordered to charge, routed the Tuscans and put them to flight. In the same hour, two armies, the two most powerful of the neighboring states were overcome. Whilst this was going on at Veii, the Volscians and the Aequi had encamped in their Latin territory and were ravaging their borders. The Latins, in conjunction with the Hernesi, drove them out of their camp without either a Roman general or Roman troops. They recovered their own property and obtained immense booty in addition. 
Nevertheless, the consul Gaius Nautius was sent from Rome against the Volscians. They did not approve, I think, of the custom of allies carrying on war in their own strength and on their own methods without any Roman general or army. There was no kind of injury or insult that was not practiced against the Volscians. They could not, however, be driven to fight a regular battle. Chapter 54 The Assassination of Genusius Lucius Furius and Gaius Manlius were the next consuls. The Veientins fell to Manlius as his province. There was no war, however. A forty years' truce was granted on their request. They were ordered to furnish corn and pay for the troops. Peace abroad was at once followed by discord at home. The tribunes employed the agrarian law to goad the plebes into a state of dangerous excitement. The consuls, nowise intimidated by the condemnation of Menenius or the danger in which Servilius had stood, resisted them with the utmost violence. On their vacating office, the tribune Genusius impeached them. They were succeeded by Lucius Aemilius and Opater Virginius. I find in some annals, Vopitius Julius instead of Virginius. Whoever the consuls were, it was in this year that Furius and Manlius, who were to be tried before the people, went about in mourning garb amongst the younger members of the Senate, quite as much as amongst the plebes. They urged them to keep clear of the high office of state and the administration of affairs, and to regard the consular fasces, the praetexta, and the curule chair as nothing but the pomp of death, for when they invested with these insignia, they were like victims adorned for sacrifice. If the consulship possessed such attractions for them, they must clearly understand that this office had been captured and crushed by the tribunician power. The consul had to do everything at the beck and call of the tribune, just as if he were his apparitor. If he took an active line, if he showed any regard for the patricians, if he thought that anything besides the plebes formed part of the commonwealth, he should keep before his eyes the banishment of Gnaeus Marcius, the condemnation and death of Menenius. Fired by these appeals, the senators held meetings, not in the Senate House, but in private, only a few being invited, as the one point on which they agreed was that the two who were impeached were to be rescued by lawful or unlawful means. The most desperate plan was the most acceptable, and men were found who advocated the most daring crime. Accordingly, on the day of the trial, whilst the plebes were standing in the forum on the tiptoe of expectation, they were surprised that the tribune did not come down to them. Further delay made them suspicious. They believed that he had been intimidated by the leaders of the Senate, and they complained that the cause of the people had been abandoned and betrayed. At last, some who had been waiting in the vestibule of the tribune's house sent word that he had been found dead in his house. As this news spread throughout the assembly, they at once dispersed in all directions, like a routed army that has lost its general. The tribunes especially were alarmed, for they were warned by their colleagues' death how absolutely ineffective the sacred laws were for their protection. The patricians, on the other hand, showed extravagant delight 
so far was any one of them from regretting the crime, that even those who had taken no part in it were anxious to appear as though they had, and it was openly asserted that the tribunician power must be chastised into submission. Chapter 55. The Publilian Law. Whilst the impression produced by this frightful instance of triumphant crime was still fresh, orders were issued for a levy, and as the tribunes were thoroughly intimidated, the consuls carried it out without any interruption from them. But now, the plebeians were more angry at the silence of the tribunes than at the exercise of authority on the part of the consuls. They said that it was all over with their liberty. They had gone back to the old state of things. The tribunician power was dead and buried with Genusius. Some other method must be thought out and adopted by which they could resist the patricians, and the only possible course was for the commons to defend themselves, as they had no other help. Four and twenty lictors attended on the consuls, and these very men were drawn from the plebes. Nothing was more contemptible and feeble than they were, if there were any that would treat them with contempt. But everyone imagined them to be great and awful things. After they had excited one another by these speeches, Valero Publilius, a plebeian, said that he ought not to be made a common soldier after serving as a centurion. The consul sent a lictor to him. Valero appealed to the tribunes. None came to his assistance, so the consuls ordered him to be stripped, and the rods got ready. I appeal to the people, he said, since the tribunes would rather see a Roman citizen scourged before their eyes than be murdered in their beds by you. The more excitedly he called out, the more violently did the lictor tear off his toga to strip him. Then Valero, himself a man of unusual strength, and helped by those to whom he called, drove the lictor off. And amidst the indignant remonstrances of his supporters, retreated into the thickest part of the crowd, crying out, I appeal to the plebes for protection. Help, fellow citizens. Help, fellow soldiers. You have nothing to expect from the tribunes. They themselves need your aid. The men, greatly excited, got ready as if for battle, and a most critical struggle was evidently impending, where no one would show the slightest respect for either public or private rights. The consuls tried to check the fury of the storm, but they soon found that there is little safety for authority without strength. The lictors were mobbed, the fascists broken, and the consuls driven from the forum into the senate house, uncertain how far Valero would push his victory. As the tumult was subsiding, they ordered the senate to be convened, and when it was assembled, they complained of the outrage done to them, the violence of the plebeians, the audacious insolence of Valero. After many violent speeches had been made, the opinion of the older senators prevailed. They disapproved of the intemperance of the plebes, being met by angry resentment on the part of the patricians. Chapter 56 Valero was now in high favor with the plebes, and they made him a tribune at the next election. Lucius Pinarius and Publius Furius were the consuls for that year. Everybody supposed that Valero would use all the power of his tribuneship to harass the consuls of the preceding year. On the contrary, 
he subordinated his private grievances to the interests of the state, and without uttering a single word which could reflect on the consuls, he proposed to the people a measure providing that the magistrates of the plebes should be elected by the assembly of the tribes. At first sight, this measure appeared to be of a very harmless description, but it would deprive the patricians of all power of electing through their clients' votes those whom they wanted as tribunes. It was most welcome to the plebeians, but the patricians resisted it to the utmost. They were unable to secure the one effectual means of resistance, namely, inducing one of the tribunes through the influence of the consuls or the leading patricians to interpose his veto. The weight and importance of the question led to a protracted controversy throughout the year. The plebes re-elected Valero. The patricians, feeling that the question was rapidly approaching a crisis, appointed Appius Claudius, the son of Appius, who, ever since his father's contest with them, had been hated by them, and cordially hated them in return. From the very commencement of the year, the law took precedence of all other matters. Valero had been the first to bring it forward, but his colleague, Laetorius, though a later, was a still more energetic supporter of it. He had won an immense reputation in war, for no man was a better fighter, and this made him a stronger opponent. Valero, in his speeches, confined himself strictly to discussing the law and abstained from all abuse of the consuls. But Latorius began by accusing Appius and his family of tyranny and cruelty toward the plebes. He said it was not a consul who had been elected, but an executioner, to harass and torture the plebeians. The untrained tongue of the soldier was unable to express the freedom of his sentiments. As words failed him, he said, I cannot speak so easily as I can prove the truth of what I have said. Come here tomorrow. I will either perish before your eyes or carry the law. Next day, the tribunes took their places on the templum. The consuls and the nobility stood about in the assembly to prevent the passage of the law. Laetorius gave orders for all, except actual voters, to withdraw. The young patricians kept their places and paid no attention to the tribune's officer, whereupon Latorius ordered some of them to be arrested. Appius insisted that the tribunes had no jurisdiction over any but plebeians. They were not magistrates of the whole people, but only of the plebes. Even he himself could not, according to the usage of their ancestors, remove any man by virtue of his authority. For the formula ran, If it seems good to you, Kirites, depart. By making contemptuous remarks about his jurisdiction, he was easily able to disconcert Latorius. The tribune, in a burning rage, sent his officer to the consul. The consul sent a lictor to the tribune, exclaiming that he was a private citizen without any magisterial authority. The tribune would have been treated with indignity had not the whole assembly risen angrily to defend the tribune against the consul whilst the people rushed from all parts of the city in excited crowds to the forum. Appius braved the storm with inflexible determination, and the conflict would have ended in bloodshed had not the other consul. Quinstius entrusted the consulars with the duty of removing, by force if necessary, his colleague from the forum. He entreated the furious plebeians to be calm 
and implored the tribunes to dismiss the assembly. They should give their passions time to cool. Delay would not deprive them of their power, but would add prudence to their strength. The Senate would submit to the authority of the people, and the consuls to that of the Senate. Chapter 57 With difficulty, Quinstius succeeded in quieting the plebeians. The senators had much greater difficulty in pacifying Appius. At length, the assembly was dismissed, and the consuls held a meeting of the Senate. Very divergent opinions were expressed, according as the emotions of fear or anger predominated. But the longer the interval during which they were called away from impulsive action to calm deliberation, the more averse did they become to a prolongation of the conflict. So much so, indeed, that they passed a vote of thanks to Quinstius for having, through his exertions, allayed the disturbance. Appius was called upon to consent to the consular authority, being so far limited as to be compatible with a harmonious commonwealth. It was urged that whilst the tribunes and the consuls each tried to bring everything under their respective authority, there was no basis for common action. The state was torn in two, and the one thing aimed at was, who should be its rulers? Not, how could its security be preserved? Appius, on the other hand, called gods and men to witness that the state was being betrayed and abandoned through fear. It was not the consul who was failing the senate. The senate was failing the consul. Worse conditions were being submitted to than those which had been accepted on the sacred hill. However, he was overborne by the unanimous feeling of the senate and became quiet. The law was passed in silence. Then, for the first time, the tribunes were elected by the assembly of the tribes. According to Piso, three were added, as though there had only been two before. He gives their names as Gnaeus Sicius, Lucius Numitorius, Marcus Dulius, Spurius Isilius, and Lucius Massilius. Chapter 58. War with the Volsians and the Aequi. During the disturbances in Rome, the war with the Volsians and the Aequi broke out afresh. They had laid waste the fields, in order that if there were a secession of the plebes, they might find refuge with them. When quiet had been restored, they moved their camp further away. Appius Claudius was sent against the Volsians. The Aequi were left for Quinstius to deal with. Appius displayed the same savage temper in the field that he had shown at home, only it was more unrestrained because he was not now fettered by the tribunes. He hated the commons, with a more intense hatred than his father had felt, for they had got the better of him and had carried their law, though he had been elected consul as being the one man who could thwart the tribunician power. A law, too, which former consuls, from whom the Senate expected less than from him, had obstructed with less trouble. Anger and indignation at all, this goaded his imperious nature into harassing his army by ruthless discipline. No violent measures, however, could subdue them. Such was the spirit of opposition with which they were filled. They did everything in a perfunctory, leisurely, careless, defiant way. No feeling of shame or fear restrained them. If he wished the column to move more quickly, they deliberately marched more slowly. If he came up to urge them on in their work, they all relaxed the energy they had been previously exerting of their own accord. In his presence, they cast their eyes down to the ground, 
When he passed by, they silently cursed him, so that the courage which had not quailed before the hatred of the plebes was sometimes shaken. After vainly employing harsh measures of every kind, he abstained from any further intercourse with his soldiers, said that the army had been corrupted by the centurions, and sometimes called them, in jeering tones, tribunes of the plebes and valeros. Chapter 59 None of this escaped the notice of the Veientines, and they pressed on more vigorously, in the hope that the Roman army would show the same spirit of disaffection towards Appius which it had shown towards Fabius. But it was much more violent towards Appius than it had been towards Fabius. For the soldiers not only refused to conquer, like the army of Fabius, but they wished to be conquered. When led into action, they broke into a disgraceful flight and made for their camp, and offered no resistance till they saw the Volsians actually attacking their entrenchments and doing frightful execution in their rear. Then they were compelled to fight, in order that the victorious enemy might be dislodged from their rampart. It was, however, quite evident that the Roman soldiers only fought to prevent the capture of the camp. Otherwise, they rejoiced in their ignominious defeat. Appius' determination was in no way weakened by this, but when he was mediating more severe measures and ordering an assembly of his troops, the officers of his staff and the military tribunes gathered round him and warned him on no account to try how far he could stretch his authority, for its force wholly depended on the free consent of those who obeyed it. They said that the soldiers, as a body, refused to come to the assembly, and demands were heard on all sides for the camp to be removed from the Volsian territory. Only a short time before the victorious enemy had all but forced his way into the camp. There were not only suspicions of a serious mutiny, the evidence was before their eyes. Appius yielded at last to their remonstrances. He knew that they would gain nothing but a delay of punishment, and consented to forego the assembly. Orders were issued for an advance on the morrow, and the trumpet gave the signal for starting at dawn. When the army had got clear of the camp and was forming in marching order, the Volsians, aroused, apparently by the same signal, fell upon the rear. The confusion thus created extended into the leading ranks and set up such a panic in the whole army that it was impossible for either orders to be heard or a fighting line to be formed. No one thought of anything but flight. They made their way over heaps of bodies and arms in such wild haste that the enemy gave up the pursuit before the Romans abandoned their flight. At last, after the consul had vainly endeavored to follow up and rally his men, the scattered troops were gradually got together again, and he fixed his camp on territory undisturbed by war. He called up the men for an assembly, and after inveighing, with perfect justice, against an army which had been false to military discipline and had deserted its standards, he asked them individually where their standards were, where their arms were. The soldiers who had thrown away their arms the standard bearers who had lost their standards, and in addition to these, the centurions and duplicari who had deserted their ranks. He ordered to be scourged and beheaded. Of the rank and file, every tenth man was drawn by lot for punishment. Chapter 60 Just the opposite state of things prevailed in the army campaigning amongst the Aequi, where the consul and his soldiers vied with each other in acts of kindness and comradeship. Quinstius was naturally milder, and the unfortunate severity of his colleague made him all the more inclined to follow the bent of his gentle disposition. The Aequi did not venture to meet an army 
where such harmony prevailed between the general and his men, and they allowed their enemy to ravage their territory in all directions. In no previous war had plunder been gathered from a wider area. The whole of it was given to the soldiers, and with it, those words of praise which, no less than material rewards, delight the soldier's heart. The army returned home on better terms with their general, and through him with the patricians. They said that whilst the Senate had given them a father, it had given the other army a tyrant. The year, which had been passed in varying fortunes of war and furious dissensions both at home and abroad, was chiefly memorable for the assembly of the tribes, which were important rather for the victory won in a prolonged contest than for any real advantage gained. For through the withdrawal of the patricians from their council, the assembly lost more in dignity than either the plebes gained or the patricians lost in strength. Chapter 61 Impeachment of Appius Claudius Lucius Valerius and Titus Aemilius were consuls for the next year, which was still a stormier one, owing, in the first place, to the struggle between the two orders over the agrarian law, and secondly to the prosecution of Appius Claudius. He was impeached by the tribunes Marcus Dullius and Gnaeus Sisius on the ground of his determined opposition to the law, and also because he defended the cause of the occupiers of the public land, as if he were a third consul. Never before had anyone been brought to trial before the people whom the plebes so thoroughly detested, both on his own and his father's account. For hardly anyone had the patricians exerted themselves more than for him, whom they regarded as the champion of the Senate and the vindicator of its authority, the stout bulwark against disturbances of tribunes or plebes, and now saw exposed to the rage of the plebeians simply for having gone too far in the struggle. Appius Claudius himself, alone of all the patricians, looked upon the tribunes, the plebes, and his own trial as of no account. Neither the threats of the plebeians nor the entreaties of the Senate could induce him. I will not say to change his attire and accost men as a suppliant, but even to soften and subdue to some extent his wanted asperity of language when he had to make his defense before the people. There was the same expression, the same defiant look, the same proud tones of speech, so that a large number of the plebeians were no less afraid of Appius on his trial than they had been when he was consul. He only spoke in his defense once, but in the same aggressive tone that he always adopted, and his firmness so dumbfounded the tribunes and the plebes that they adjourned the case of their own accord, and then allowed it to drag on. There was not a very long interval, however. Before the date of the adjourned trial arrived, he was carried off by illness. The tribunes tried to prevent any funeral oration being pronounced over him, but the plebeians would not allow the obsequies of so great a man to be robbed of the customary honors. They listened to the panegyric of the dead as attentively as they had listened to the indictment of the living, and vast crowds followed him to the tomb. Chapter 62 War with the Sabines, Aequi, and Volsians In the same year, the consul Valerius advanced with an army against the Aequi, but failing to draw the enemy into an engagement, he commenced an attack on their camp. A terrible storm, sent down from heaven, of thunder and hail, prevented him from continuing the attack. The surprise was heightened when, after the retreat had been sounded, calm and bright weather returned. He felt that it would have been an act of impiety to attack a second time a camp defended by some divine power. His warlike energies were turned to the devastation of the country. 
the other consul, Aemilius, conducted a campaign amongst the Sabines. There too, as the enemy kept behind their walls, their fields were laid to waste. The burning of not only scattered homesteads, but also of villages with numerous populations, roused the Sabines to action. They met the depredators. An indecisive action was fought, after which they moved their camp into a safer locality. The consul thought this a sufficient reason for leaving the enemy as though defeated, and coming away without finishing the war. Chapter 63 Titus, Numitius, Prissus, and Aulus Virginius were the new consuls. The domestic disturbance continued through these wars, and the plebeians were evidently not going to tolerate any further delay with regard to the agrarian law, and were preparing for extreme measures when the smoke of burning farms and the flight of the country folk announced the approach of the Volscians. This checked the revolution, which was now ripe and on the point of breaking out. The Senate was hastily summoned and the consuls led the men liable for active service out to the war, thereby making the rest of the plebes more peaceably disposed. The enemy retired precipitately, having effected nothing but beyond filling the Romans with groundless fears. Numisius advanced against the Volscians to Antium, Virginius against the Aequi. Here he was ambushed and narrowly escaped a serious defeat. The valor of the soldiers restored the fortunes of the day which the consul's negligence had imperiled. More skillful generalship was shown against the Volscians. The enemy were routed in the first engagement and driven in flight to Antium, which was, for those days, a very wealthy city. The consul did not venture to attack it, but he took Cano from the Antiates, not by any means so wealthy a place. Whilst the Aequi and Volscians were keeping the Roman armies engaged, the Sabines extended their ravages up to the gates of the city. In a few days, the consuls invaded their territory and attacked fiercely by both armies. They suffered heavier losses than they had inflicted. Chapter 64 Towards the close of the year, there was a short interval of peace. But, as usual, it was marred by the struggle between the patricians and the plebeians. The plebes, in their exasperation, refused to take any part in the election of the consuls. Titus Quinctius and Quintus Servilius were elected consuls by the patricians and their clients. They had a year similar to the previous one, agitation during the first part, then the calming of this by foreign war. The Sabines hurriedly traversed the plains of Crustumerium and carried fire and sword into the district watered by the Aeneo, but were repulsed when almost close to the Colline Gate and the walls of the city. They succeeded, however, in carrying off immense spoil, both in men and cattle. The consul Servilius followed them up with an army bent on revenge. Though unable to come up with their main body in the open country, he carried on his ravages on such an extensive scale that he left no part unmolested by war, and returned with spoil many times greater than that of the enemy. Amongst the Volscians also, the cause of Rome was splendidly upheld by the exertions of general and soldiers alike. To begin with, they met on level ground and a pitched battle was fought with immense losses on both sides, and killed and wounded. The Romans, whose paucity of numbers made them more sensible of their losses, would have retreated, had not the consul called out that the enemy on the other wing were in flight, and by this well-timed falsehood roused the army to fresh effort. They made a charge, and converted a supposed victory into a real one. The consul, 
fearing lest by pressing the attack too far he might force a renewal of the combat, gave the signal for retiring. For the next few days, both sides kept quiet, as though there were a tacit understanding. During this interval, an immense body of men from all the Volsian and Aquian cities came into camp, fully expecting that when the Romans heard of their arrival, they would make a nocturnal retreat. Accordingly, about the third watch they moved out to attack the camp. After allaying the confusion caused by the sudden alarm, Quinstius ordered the soldiers to remain quietly in their quarters, marched out a cohort of Hernicans to the outposts, mounted the buglers and trumpeters on horseback, and ordered them to sound their calls and keep the enemy on alert till dawn. For the remainder of the night, all was so quiet in the camp that the Romans even enjoyed ample sleep. The sight of the armed infantry whom the Volsians took to be Romans, and more numerous than they really were, the noise and neighing of the horses, restless under their unexperienced riders and excited by the sound of the trumpets, kept the enemy in constant apprehension of an attack. Chapter 65 At daybreak the Romans, fresh from their undisturbed sleep, were led into action, and at the first charge broke the Volsians, worn out as they were with standing and want of sleep. It was, however, a retreat rather than a rout, for in their rear there were hills to which all behind the front ranks safely retired. When they reached the rising ground, the consul halted his army. The soldiers were with difficulty restrained. They clamored to be allowed to follow up the beaten foe. The cavalry were much more insistent. They crowded round the general and loudly declared that they would go on in advance of the infantry, while the consul, sure of the courage of his men, but not reassured as to the nature of the ground, was still hesitating. They shouted that they would go on and followed up their shouts by making an advance, fixing their spears in the ground that they might be more lightly equipped for the ascent. They went up at a run. The Volsians hurled their javelins at the first onset and then flung the stones lying at their feet upon the enemy as they came up. Many were hit, and through the disorder thus created, they were forced back from higher ground. In this way, the Roman left wing was nearly overwhelmed, but through the reproaches which the consul cast upon his retreating men for their rashness as well as their cowardice, he made their fear give way to the sense of shame. At first, they stood and offered a firm resistance. Then, when by holding their ground they had recovered their energies, they ventured upon an advance. With a renewed shout, the whole line went forward, and pressing on in a second charge, they surmounted the difficulties of the ascent, and were just on the point of reaching the summit, when the enemy turned and fled. With a wild rush, pursuers and fugitives almost in one mass dashed into the camp, which was taken. Those of the Volsians, who succeeded in escaping, made for Antium. Thither, the Roman army was led. After a few days' investment, the place was surrendered, not owing to any unusual efforts on the part of the besiegers, but simply because, after the unsuccessful battle and the loss of their camp, the enemy had lost heart. End of section 14.